Welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenore Walters and joining me today are Emma Adjumang, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle and Don Smith, Chief Investment Officer at Brown Shipley. Market volatility may be low, but with indices teetering at record highs, it might only be a matter of time before the current relative calm descends into stormy chaos. But although this is not an attractive prospect for investors, it might not be as bad as it seems. Emma, you've been looking at this. Why is volatility not necessarily bad? Well, technically speaking, Leonora, volatility really just means the degree to which share prices fluctuate. Um, And share prices going up and down can have both good and bad outcomes. In terms of the positive outcomes, um, increased volatility could lead to higher share prices, boosting investor returns. But even if prices fall, that means it can create buying opportunities. Okay, so if it's not so bad, why are some investors still fearful of volatility? Well, the thing is that volatility has come to mean two different things. One is a description I sort of just gave of, of share price fluctuation. But the other is when investors see it as a shorthand for how much money they could lose and how quickly. And if you think about volatility as that potential capital loss, you can understand why investors get fearful about the prospect of it increasing. Okay, so when can volatility cause problems? Well, if it leads to dramatic falls in share prices, which could have the potential to wipe out your investment returns, that's obviously the main concern that people have. Um, and this is really a particular problem for investors who are who have a short-term investment horizon, which we would say is anything within the next five years, because basically you just have less time to recover from a big dramatic fall in share prices. Okay, so what are some of the things you can do to mitigate volatility in your portfolio? Well, an obvious one really is to invest for a longer period of time because, you know, the fact is that volatility, if we get dramatic um, share price falls, affects people more in the short term. If you've got a longer period of time, generally the market will have time to bounce back. So that's one, um, you know, quick way, not quick way, one a straightforward way you could mitigate volatility. The other is really just making sure you're properly diversified, making sure that you're spread across a range of assets and sectors as this will mean you're not over-reliant on any one area um, you know, to, to achieve the returns that you're looking for. Okay. Now, these sound like good ideas, but you do also say in your article that constructing a portfolio to lessen volatility has become more difficult. Why yeah. is this? One of the main reasons that one of the main asset classes that people have traditionally used to counter volatility um, in equities is bonds. But these have become very expensive lately and arguably more correlated with equities, especially with all the quantitative easing we've had. So, so they're less effective um, than they once were to, to some extent at counteracting um, volatility. Cash is another way that people have traditionally mitigated that. But with interest rates so low, you're actually locking yourself into very low rates if you're going to have more cash as part of your portfolio. Okay, so are there any other techniques that you can use to try and manage your portfolio through volatility? Well, article goes into some more suggestions, but one of them is that you can just really be clear about the investment goals that you're trying to achieve and not react to short-term events by trading in and out of positions. And obviously, that's sometimes easier said than done. But really, if you do, you can risk dampening your long-term investment returns. You know, if you decide to change halfway through, go for a lower-risk asset a few years down the line, that actually could lead to you having less returns than you wanted to. Okay. Now, Don, do you think we do a market correction? I think corrections are an inevitable part of investing. 
We see them uh, regularly uh, happen, uh, especially after long periods in which markets have trended in a, a single direction. Everyone seems to position themselves over time uh, in the same way. And when an extraordinary or very unexpected risk event happens, there's a tendency for everyone to try and get out of the same door at the same time. And that creates uncertainty. And there's a feedback effect into the markets. And the uh, consequence is that markets can move sometimes quite quite significantly. Uh, these types of events tend to be relatively short-term and uh, have been described sometimes as a uh, something of a shakeout. And there are always a risk when we see long periods in which markets uh, have risen. And arguably, we're at now in a situation where optically many equity markets look very expensive. There's been a fundamental change in terms of the underlying global economic backdrop and the interest rate backdrop that investors need to be aware of but looking at levels of equity markets, they do appear high. And there is, I think, an increasing nervousness that perhaps we are due a correction. I have to say in relation to that, that more recently we have seen weakness coming through in some of the key markets, mm -hmm. especially in Europe. But I have to say in relation to that, that it's important when markets move unexpectedly uh, that investors sit back and look at these deeper fundamentals and okay. ask the question, you know, is what we are seeing genuinely reflective of underlying fundamentals? Yeah, there's a possibly even a correction looming. Emma said it might throw up some opportunities. Would you agree that, you know, rather than being a bad thing, it might throw up some opportunities? Yes, I think it does, because corrections typically drive volatility higher. They drive uncertainty and you tend to get markets overreacting and sectors and individual companies being underpriced relative to their fundamentals. And while many people are panicking, it's quite often a good strategy in a longer-term perspective to sit back and rationally understand the underlying intrinsic valuation of stocks and markets and use these periods of relative panic to step in and, and take longer-term investment decisions. Okay. Thinking about where the investment landscape is at the moment, if there's a correction coming up, what kind of opportunities do you think it might throw up? It depends on the nature of this correction. So at the moment, we're seeing weakness in equity markets coming through from Europe, and that relates to a, an investor perception that central banks more generally are beginning to catch up with the US Federal Reserve in moving away from very, very accommodative and supportive policies. Now, we know that in the US, the central bank has been becoming less supportive of financial markets. It's been raising interest rates because it feels confident to do that because the underlying economic picture in the US has been, has been very strong. In Europe, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank have been uh, very supportive, have had rates at very, very low levels, have been engaging in quantitative easing to provide ongoing support for economies and uh, financial markets. And more recently, there's been a sense from some of the central bankers in Europe that, well, perhaps they're more confident about longer-term growth fundamentals and prepared now to start withdrawing some of this uh, stimulus and support. And we're seeing very focused weakness in European markets at the moment. 
And the interesting thing is that in emerging markets and developed Asia, we're seeing much less of this weakness coming through. And to my mind, there is an opportunity here to uh, invest in some of the Asian and uh, developed Asian and uh, emerging markets, um, especially if we see what we're, uh, what's happening at the moment escalate into a, a period of uh, what one would term uh, equity market correction. Okay. Now, talking of taking opportunities, there are instruments known as exchange-traded notes, or ETNs for short, which look to track volatility indices such as the VIX. Do you think these are a good, maybe alternative way to take advantage of volatility? It's certainly a bit different. Yeah, they are a bit different. Uh, we don't really uh, invest heavily in these type of instruments. They're highly speculative. Investors can end up chasing their tails. And um, I wouldn't I wouldn't regard a, an investment in uh, that takes a view on volatility as a longer-term investment. And they're not something that we would recommend that investors uh, engage in. Okay. Now, regardless of any opportunities, some investors still need to mitigate volatility. So what would you say are the main ways you could mitigate it? Emma's comments, uh, I very much agree with. Uh, diversification is important. Emma implicitly uh, indicated that investors who uh, seek higher returns need to accept that uh, their investments will be riskier and they need to accept higher levels of volatility. Now, if they're uncomfortable about uh, that prospect, then they perhaps they should rethink their uh, investment objectives. And uh, if investors want to invest in a lower volatility environment, they would have to accept um, uh, lower uh, returns from their investments. So that's something that they could consider for, for investors that are particularly uncomfortable about uh, volatility. There are low beta or low uh, market risk investments that uh, investors can focus on. There are exchange-traded funds that uh, have uh, low uh, volatility characteristics. Yeah, some low volatility ETFs. I was going to come to that. What do you think of them? I mean, obviously, the VIX ETNs are a bit, uh, let's say, out there. What about these low vol ETFs? They're not quite the same, are they? They're not quite the same. The returns have been have been fairly good, actually. Uh, and they actually invest in shares, don't they? They're not sort of strange derivative instruments. Yeah, they do. And they're relatively low cost. But one thing I think to be aware of is that a lot of the environments uh, for these uh, low volatility ETFs uh, has been, a lot of them are, tend to be heavily weighted with high dividend type defensive uh, equities, which uh, veer towards stocks which uh, one would regard as bond proxies. And these are stocks that tend to do relatively well in an environment where interest rates and yields are falling mm. and less well when interest rates are rising. Now, we've had a long period, multi-decade period, in which the trend in global bond yields has been downwards. And this uh, backdrop has been supportive for uh, these low vol. Uh, ETFs. Going forward, if we are moving into an environment where interest rates are starting to rise again across the world, it's something that investors should bear in mind. It it does present, in my opinion, an additional risk in relation to these these funds. Uh, I I don't think that we would necessarily see 
a tremendous underperformance from them, but I think it's an additional risk factor that uh, investors need to be aware of. Okay. Now, talking of risks and constructing a portfolio for low volatility, Emma mentioned that it's getting much harder because correlations between different assets have increased. So what would you say investors should do about that? Uh, Well, she's absolutely right. Uh, And it is problematic. And in some markets, there are positive correlations emerging between bonds and equities, which are which are unhelpful. I have to say that the the correlation is still very, very low. Uh, So it it still underscores the importance of diversification across different asset groups. I think at the margin, it makes it a little bit more difficult and investors have to perhaps uh, search further to get the necessary diversification uh, that's required to um, to optimise their return characteristics for, for the given uh, risk profiles that they have. Emerging markets, Asian markets are an interesting option. In extremists, you tend to find that all markets will move, mm. all equity markets will yeah. move in the same direction, which is a little bit problematic. But I think there are, certainly in the current investment environment, it's difficult to imagine that there is going to be a very major market correction at a time when global growth fundamentals are so very positive, uh, global inflation pressure remains so very benign. And uh, I think in terms of diversification in the current environment, investors can think perhaps about um, moving into developed Asian markets and emerging markets. They look, uh, they look quite attractive. Now, we've obviously raised the problems of bonds are expensive. Perhaps they're not as uncorrelated as they used to be. One product that some people turn to in times of volatility is absolute return funds. But obviously, opinions are divided on these because they don't all work brilliantly. Um, do you think that absolute return funds are a good portfolio diversifier if you can't rely on bonds? I think they are. I think uh, there are a number of very good portfolio diversifiers, property. I think absolute return funds, you have to be very careful about, uh, in my opinion, because some of them don't do quite what they purport to do. And we've seen evidence when uh, markets become very volatile, very uncertain, and we see some sometimes, on occasion, significant equity market corrections where you would expect an absolute return fund to be hedged against uh, the absolute return fund um, performs poorly as well. So what I would advise in relation to the absolute return fund space is that uh, investors have to be very selective uh, in terms of selecting appropriate funds that will protect their investments in times when equity markets are weakening because not all of these absolute return funds seem to do that. They have to look very closely at the investment history uh, of these funds and the uh, obviously the individual fund managers and properly understand the strategies that these funds are employing uh, in order to protect and achieve the uh, the returns that they are um, are seeking uh, but in general the asset class i think is a useful uh, diversifier for portfolios investors just have to be very careful in terms of their fund selection here yeah okay thank you you can check out some good absolute return funds that have done what they uh, say in the can in our ic top 100 funds list thank you don and you can see some asset allocation models for cautious and adventurous investors in this week's money section in the magazine and on the website 
Now, last week, we hit half year. And in terms of investment winners, so far, the leaders appear to be European smaller companies funds. And this wasn't largely down to exchange rates either. Over the first six months of the year, sterling weakened less than 3% against the euro. So, Don, what's been driving European smaller companies and the funds which invest in them? Well, we look mainly at the UK funds and in this respect, what we saw in the immediate post-Brexit period was underperformance of UK uh, small companies. And we've seen a, a significant outperformance uh, of the UK and, as you say, European more, general, uh, more generally uh, uh, small companies over the last six months. Sterling hasn't moved a great deal on a trade-weighted basis over the last six months, but it has moved up significantly against the dollar. We were at, at the beginning of the year, we were about 122 versus the dollar, and now we're up at close to well, around about 130. And that has been a significant uh, upward move. And that, uh, I think, has contributed to underperformance of large caps versus small caps. Um, and uh, so I would actually put some of this outperformance down to currency moves, and uh, some of it. Uh, to a, a catch-up of the small companies after having underperformed in the immediate wake of, uh, of Brexit. Okay. So can European smaller companies and the funds which invest in them continue to deliver, or do you think they've had their run? I think they can continue to deliver. There are interesting growth fundamentals in Europe at the moment. The UK smaller companies, domestically focused smaller companies, are going to be challenged by uncertainties related to Brexit. Uh, and I think that's going to be problematic for them. And it will be problematic also if sterling starts to uh, weaken again, if uncertainties escalate in, in relation to the um, uh, outcome of Brexit negotiations. Many European smaller companies are benefiting in the eurozone from what appears to be a, a very significant acceleration that we're seeing in the, in the pace of um, economic growth. And part of that is supported by what we're seeing in Asia as well, with uh, uh, many Asian economies uh, performing very well. And that's something that I think uh, I would expect to continue. The euro is likely to uh, appreciate, we think, in coming months. Uh, and that is something which will tend to work against the larger global companies uh, and uh, support relative valuations for smaller domestically focused euro companies. You know, you have to separate the UK and and the eurozone here in terms yeah. of how you look at this. And I think the 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 in the eurozone, the outlook for small and mid cap and smaller mid cap companies uh, is significantly better than than the UK. Uh, and the UK companies are going to be challenged by um, a very difficult domestic environment. We feel. Okay. Now, in view of a good performance, do you think um, eurozone equities are now expensive? <laughs> well, relative to government bonds, in fact, you know, across the, the the global equity market space, Europe looks better value at the moment relative to the US. It doesn't look as good value as emerging markets, but it looks it it, it looks reasonably good value, and compared to government bonds. Uh, in the bond space, uh, equity markets look reasonably good value uh, as well. Now, I know that optically many of these markets look very elevated, uh, 
But as I mentioned before, the fundamental environments, uh, the fundamental backdrop for equity markets has changed significantly. We are operating at a significantly lower level of um, of interest rates, and this is this has been part of uh, an ongoing trend for the last thirty years or so. It's been associated with uh, a declining trend in inflation. It's been associated with significant growth that we've been seeing in uh, Asian uh, um, and developing markets. And it's something that we think uh, is likely to be sustained. And so, although <clears throat> viewed in historical perspective, equity market levels look high, we don't believe them to be significantly overvalued uh, at the moment. And looking across the different uh, regional um, markets, we view the European equity market space as being certainly looking better value than, than the US. OK. Now, exchange rates have been quite favourable as far as uh, euro-denominated equities are concerned. But can this continue or do you think a strengthening sterling might diminish the returns from euro-listed equities going ahead? So we think that sterling in the short to medium term is compromised. Uh, it's compromised fundamentally uh, in any case because of uh, structural issues related to the uh, UK economy and the size of its current account deficit. And that's been the case for a long time now. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why the currency reacted so badly in the immediate wake of last year's referendum. We still think it's vulnerable. It, the UK still has a, a very sizable uh, economic uh, uh, current account deficit. The domestic economic environment seems to be weakening. Consumer spending seems to be falling back. The economy is struggling at the moment, I think, with uh, an external um, impulse to inflation, which is finding a little bit difficult to cope with. And we view the outlook for sterling in the short to medium term, especially given the uncertainties about Brexit negotiations, as negative. So that means that for uh, investors in overseas assets, this is this should be regarded as uh, a supporting factor. It's a good news. Yeah, yeah it, it, it essentially it's a, it's an argument for global diversification, for moving away from your domestic markets into into far and wide into into uh, globally diversified markets. I mean, we would argue that uh, there are risks um, in in relation to political risks in relation to Europe that uh, mean that investing further afield, as I've mentioned, emerging markets and uh, developed Asia, uh, is in fact a uh, uh, arguably a, a better uh, opportunity, long, certainly a longer-term opportunity for investors than investing in, in the euro. But the weakness of sterling, I think, will, will definitely be a, a, a nice following wind for investors who, who invest beyond the borders of the UK. OK, and do you think this will intensify as Brexit approaches? That depends on the negotiations, and it's a difficult thing for, I think, many investors, many market analysts at the moment, because we are dealing with huge levels of uncertainty about how these negotiations with the EU are going to unfold. Um, we're really only at the very beginnings of the negotiations, and uh, it matters hugely, hugely for, um, for sterling. Uh, and therefore, for investors, certainly investors that that, that have um, assets, hold assets in in non-sterling currencies, because if the UK manages to negotiate uh, a very positive deal, 
with good access to the customs union for the UK economy in isolation, that is a hugely positive factor for sterling uh, and, and, in fact, for the UK economy. And that will impact investor returns um, in overseas markets. Would it just be euro-denominated um, equities or do you think it would um, uh, have an impact? You know, would sterling also rise against, um, let's say, non-euro-denominated equities as well? Yeah, it would. sterling would rise against all currencies. I mean, think about, for example, where we were uh, against the dollar uh, pre-referendum. So we were at levels against the dollar of around the 150 mark. And we came down all the way down to the 120, you know, very low 120s. And now we're back up at 130, but we're still very significantly lower than we were pre-referendum. So this is a, a, this is a sterling phenomenon. The size of the UK's current account deficit means essentially that the, the value of sterling is hugely reliant on global investor perceptions about the returns that they might get investing in the UK. And it's, it's, it, and that in turn is hugely affected by the success of the UK in terms of its negotiations with the EU. If it's perceived that the UK is going to have a very successful ending to these negotiations, then for investors across the world, uh, they would see the UK as a very much better place to invest in. And sterling would rise as a result against all currencies against the dollar against the euro against just every currency so it's it's it, it impacts all currencies equally almost okay thank you don some really interesting insights that brings us to the end of today's podcast so it just remains to thank emma Adjamang, personal finance writer at investors chronicle and don smith chief investment officer at brown shipley you can read more on ways to manage your portfolio for volatility, VIX ETNs and volatility ETFs, and the markets, funds and sectors which have been topping the tables in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.